This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Derek Armstrong and Word of Grace Community Church. For more information, please visit WOGCC.com. Here, uh, my family and I were on vacation, and I pre- uh, appreciate Pastor Stephen coming and filling in. I heard a lot of good things about his message, and uh, he continued on in the definition series that we've been in, and I'm going to continue on with that. And the title of my message today is Family. That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the definition of family. And Webster's definition of family is simply a group of people who are related to each other. I'm like, really? That's the best you got, Webb? Um, but that was all he had. So uh, that's basically what family is. You think about that. I mean, all of us, even though we may not be related by blood, we're r- related by something that is much deeper, and that is Jesus Christ. Because if you are a part of the family of God, the people you are looking at right now, this is your forever family. So take a good look around. You're going to be around these folks for a while. Okay. I mean, this is forever, okay? And so, you know, we are related to each other through Christ. And we need to understand exactly what family means and what God means when he uses that word family and what his definition is of family. Because a lot of times we get our own definitions in the way. And we're going to call that self-rule. Because when we choose our own way above God, it's us saying, God, I'm smarter than you. It's us saying, God, I'm going to rule my life. I'm going to make my decision the way I want to. I'll choose to believe this and that. No, I don't want to believe that as much. I, I like this one. That fits my lifestyle pretty well. And we pick and choose what we want to believe, and that's self-rule. That's what Adam and Eve, the first man and woman that God created in the Garden of Eden, chose to do. Instead of choosing to trust God and obey God, they chose to rule themselves by making their decisions outside of what God desired and what God had told them to do. And so I think a lot of times we still do that today. It's almost like we're still in the Garden of Eden, and we have this choice. Are we going to choose to submit to God's authority and trust in Him, or are we going to choose self-rule? Because self-rule denies the authority of God in your life. That's what it does. When we choose self-rule, it actually denies that authority of God. It's saying, God, I know better than you. I'm smarter than you. My reasoning somehow makes me justified in this area or that area, and it removes us and denies the authority of God in our life. It's a choice we make when we decide really that we know better than God. Now, God has his definition of what family is, and we have our own definition possibly of what family means. And that definition was created through a series of things. One of those things is basically the home you grew up in. A lot of us saw a lot of things happen in our homes, and because we saw that, we think, well, that must be what family is. Or our friends and advisors, people that we look up to, people that we you know, may uh, hold in high regard, and we may think, oh, this person is, uh, you know, has a great family, and so that's my definition of family, or what someone tells me my family should look like. Or maybe the modern media. You know, you look at television, and you look at movies, TV shows, and don't they always portray the dad as a goofball? I mean, all the time on TV. I mean, don't! You know, I mean, he's just, he's just an idiot. And, and, and because of that, men think, oh, well, I'm supposed to be a goofball and an idiot, and I'm not really supposed to take any responsibility in my life, or this is my role. And we get confused because we buy into what the mass media is selling. And all these things kind of influence really heavily our definition of what family means. So for us to define family according to God, the one who actually came up with the idea of family, we must decide to lay aside our self-ruling pictures that have been painted for us. Those self-ruling pictures that we have accepted as truth. We've got to be willing to lay those things aside. So before we get into any of the meat of this message, we have to ask ourselves a very challenging question. Are we willing to give up what we think and believe for the truth? Are we willing to do that? I mean, because so many of us have our way of thinking that's been formed by all of these different influences in our lives, or we have our way of believing because of all the different influences in our life, but if God is the one that's supposed to set the definition in order, are we willing to give up what we think and believe for the truth? Let me take that just a little step further and challenge you just a little bit more. Are you willing to give up what you think and believe for the truth, even if it makes you the minority in culture? You see, a lot of people are willing to give up what they think and believe when it's popular. Oh, yeah, well, this is the new thing we're supposed to do. Okay, sounds good to me. 
But what about if it actually removes you from what's popular and what's accepted by the general population and what everybody's telling you, what maybe uh, the, the schools are telling you or, or, or what the television is telling you or what the government is telling you? All of a sudden, your beliefs make you kind of stick out like a sore thumb or, or, or you're not as welcome in certain groups of people now because you have chosen to believe what God believes. If it makes you the minority in culture, are you still willing to give up what you think and believe for the truth? That's a little harder. It's a little bit more difficult to go against the grain, isn't it? When everybody says, this is the way it's supposed to be, and God says, no, this is, this is how I have defined family. This is how I have defined it. And that's harder. That's challenging because it's not popular. It's not, it's not something that's always just welcomed. And we're going, okay, my, well, 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 let me try to find something else then. Let me find something that's popular. You know, even Disneyland has this principle figured out about not going with the crowd. Because when you go and visit Disneyland, they have a thing on their website where you can plan your visit, okay? And you can actually prepare everything that you want to do, everywhere you want to go, and they tell you this rule on their website. Don't follow the crowd because the crowd doesn't know where it's going. (laughs) They tell you that. They say, if you want to know where to get where you need to go, then you need to ask one of our workers. And they're identified with their name tags, and they all dress the same. And you can ask one of them where to go if you get lost, or you can always refer to your map. Don't go follow the crowd, because the odds are is that if you follow the crowd, there's probably a group of people who all decided to vacation together. It's their first time at Disneyland, and there's 50 of them, and they're all walking one way, and you'd all of a sudden, you just go in like a little lemming, and you just kind of get become part of the group, and next thing you know, somebody turns around in the group and goes, where are we going, guys? I don't know. And you're going, why did I follow these people? It's the same thing that happens in our lives today. Don't follow the crowd because honestly, folks, the crowd doesn't know where they're going. Crowd doesn't know where they're going. You need to refer to the one, our God. Our, uh, we, we need to refer to his word. We need to refer to his scripture and find out exactly where we need to be going and what he has for us, not what the crowd tells us to do. Because sometimes the crowd can be very contrary to what God is saying. Sometimes what you grew up thinking because of the environment you grew up in is very contrary to Scripture. Sometimes what your friends and your advisors will tell you is even contrary to God. And sometimes, most of the time, what you'll see on television is very contrary to what God says. And we get all these definitions from that, though. So are we really willing, even if it makes us the minority, to give up what we believe and what we think for the truth? If you've got your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. This is the creation of man and um, the establishment of the family, which you must understand why family is so important, because family is the foundation of culture. And where the family begins to um, lose its morality, where family begins to lose its values, where family begins to remove itself out from under the authority of God, there goes the culture. That's how it works, okay? Family is very, very uh, important to culture. So we need to understand, okay, God, what is the deal with this thing called family? What's the definition? So let's look to God creating and establishing this thing called family. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was his name. That must have taken a while and been a lot of fun. (laughs) So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. He slept and took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to Adam, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is God painting the perfect picture of family and what family is supposed to look like. And this is God saying, listen, family was my idea, okay? Not man's idea. So when you understand that family was God's idea, not man's idea, man cannot redefine God's idea. Hello, somebody. 
Man cannot redefine God's idea. Man can redefine man's ideas. I mean, if I have an idea, we can redefine that whole thing. It doesn't matter. But I can't redefine God's ideas. When God establishes something, especially when we see it here, right here in Scripture, that He has established this from the very foundations of creation, we must know that it's important, and this is the way that God had created it to be. It was God's idea, not man. And it's so strange to me because we look at a man, we look at a woman, we look at how differently we're wired, how differently we think and process things, and, and you know somehow God makes it work, but men and women are weird. And God makes it work, though. He created it to work. He designed it to work. Children are weird. I expected a big amen and somebody to run up here and high-five me or something. I don't know. Kids are weird. I mean, you, you look at these little people, and especially if you're, you're, you're dealing with a child that's the opposite sex of you, and you look and you're like, I don't know what to do with you, little girl. Why are you crying? I, I don't know what to do right now. You're so strange to me. But somehow God created all of these different pieces to work together. That's how he designed it to be. Look at a church. Church doesn't make any sense at all because we're all different. We all are at different places in life, and we're all at different places in, in, in how we do things and how we've been raised and brought up, and we have different ways of thinking. We have different values, but somehow we all come together and we make this work. Is that not just crazy? I think it's really awesome. It's a beautiful picture of the individuality that God gave us, but yet how it fits together collectively. And that's why we're His family. We're the body of Christ. That's why we all have different gifts and different abilities and different talents and different purposes that He's created us for to work together for a greater purpose that's bigger than any individual. It's different. It's weird. But God created it to work. God made all of this stuff to work. It was His idea. You see... God came up with this idea that a man and a woman were going to make this thing called family. Now, sometimes that means biological children. Sometimes it means adopted children. Um, sometimes if, if you're, you're a single person, it, it could mean that you know, family uh, being your, your, your parents, your grandparents, your immediate family. Uh, also, maybe even if you're, you're alone and, and you have friends that treat you as family, God created us for connection. And he wants us to be a part of this thing that was called family. And we have different ideas about how it's supposed to go. That's the problem. That's where the problem comes in is when we have different ideas about how things are supposed to go because we have different definitions based on how we were raised or what others have told us or whatever influences we allow in our lives. And so because of these different definitions... We can have that as a point of conflict because when you're dating and you're all googly-eyed over one another, it, it, your, your, your sweet whisperings of nothings turn into loud shouting matches in the car on the way to church. Why? Because I've got a different idea than you have. I've got a different philosophy than you have on this, and I wish to discuss this with you. <laughs> and we're different. And when you put two things that are different together, that have different ideas, a lot of times you can, you, you can find a lot of points of contention. But let me tell you something. God created it to work, so that's got to give you hope. <laughs> Amen, somebody. You see, that's got to give us hope. If God created and designed this thing to work, He didn't create this thing called family to be set up to fail. He created it to work. And we've got to remember that. So there's got to be a way to make this thing work. And we've got to take these different definitions and say, okay, I'm willing to give up what I believe for the truth. I'm will are you willing to give up what you believe for the truth? Let's together be willing to give up what we have thought and believed to be the truth. And let's find out what God says and let's come together on that. That's what church is. Where we go, you know what, I've got different ideas, I've got different thoughts, but let's come together on what God said. Amen, somebody? Because in the end, that's really all that's going to matter is what God said and how we respond to that. So we're different. But God created it to somehow work. You know, we, 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 we have this different idea about what it means uh, to be productive as a family, what the purpose of it is. So let's look to Scripture. If you still have your Bible open uh, to Genesis, just look in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. This is right after God created um, man and woman, and, and he was blessing them. And he said this in Genesis 1 and 28. He said, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, every living thing that moves on the earth. He said, be fruitful and multiply. A lot of times in family, we get the multiplying part. We're, we're good at that one, but we don't really get the fruitful part. 
We may miss the fruitful part because we say be fruitful and multiply. He's not saying multiply and multiply. We get how to procreate, but we don't always understand how to make our families fruitful. And God doesn't want us just to multiply and fill the earth. He wants us to be fruitful. He wants us to actually be effective. He wants us to be glorifying Him with our lives. And that is where when we have the different ideas about how it should go, that we may not always be fruitful because fruitful families don't just happen. Fruitful marriages don't just happen. Fruitful finances don't just happen. Fruity people happen, <laughs> but not fruitful. Not fruitful, not, not people that are producing good things in a life. Jesus talked about fruit a lot in his ministry. He said, he said, either make the tree good and the fruit good, or the tree's bad and the fruit's bad. He said, a tree's going to be known by its fruit. He said, we, we, he wants us to be fruitful and multiply. And we, we need to understand that. We need to understand that fruitful families don't just happen. Fruitful families are intentional. They're intentional. They're proactive. They're not always reactive to every single situation. They're intentional in what they do. You can't look at someone else and what they have in life and be jealous and just wish that it's going to happen to you. Oh, I wish my wife would treat me that way or my husband. I wish my children would be respectful like so-and-so's kid. I wish, I wish, I wish. Stop wishing and being reactive and start being intentional and being proactive. We've got to start investing in the right things that God wants us to invest in. I love basketball. I'm a big basketball fan and, and I, all my life, even when I was a kid. And I remember in 1992, Shaquille O'Neal got drafted. And the NBA had not seen anything like Shaquille O'Neal because he was a monster, okay? Seven foot tall, but he was a big guy and he could move up and down the court. Very intimidating. Everybody tried to figure out what to do to stop Shaquille O'Neal. Shaquille O'Neal really didn't come into uh, real effectiveness until he got traded to the Los Angeles Lakers. That's when he really became a powerhouse in the NBA because he had better players surrounding him. But nobody knew what to do with him. Nobody knew how to stop Shaquille O'Neal. They came up with different ways to stop him. I remember during the playoffs one year that they coined this phrase that every team was trying. It was called hack-a-shack. And what they would do is they would intentionally foul Shaquille O'Neal to get him to shoot free throws because he was a terrible free throw shooter. And, and, and you would watch an NBA playoff game when the Lakers were playing and half the game was Shaquille O'Neal at the free throw line. And they were extremely boring games. That was the strategy. Why did they do that? Because they didn't know what else to do. They, they had no idea. So Hack-A-Shack was born and everybody was fouling him. Then Shaquille O'Neal got good at shooting free throws. And then now what do we do? So that year in the NBA draft, all of the teams that had good draft picks, they weren't looking for point guards. They weren't looking for forwards. They were all looking for big men. That's who they were drafting that year. You can look at the draft. Everybody was wanting the big guy. Why? Because they were reacting to this presence of Shaquille O'Neal, trying to figure out what to do. You look at it, it even happens in, that'll even happen in football, where you'll see, you know, uh, all of a sudden a lot of quarterbacks are drafted that year. Well, well, why? We're reacting to something. We're trying to fix something. We're trying to compete. We're trying to do something. And a lot of times we live our lives as, as families, as Christians, the exact same way. It's like something comes our way. We don't know what to do with it, and we're just hacking shack. That's the best thing we could come up with. And it's not very effective because now that's not fixing the problem. No, we have to be proactive in our strategies and what we're going to do and not just reactive all the time. Amen? The problem is, is that a lot of us grew up in reactive homes. We grew up in reactive homes where we saw reactions modeled before us that were not very healthy reactions. A mistake was made, something bad happened, something was stressful in the home, and all of a sudden mom or dad reacts with anger. And so there's a lot of anger in the home. There's a lot of hostility in the home, a lot of raised voices in the home. Why? Because things are out of control and the parents don't know how to regain control. And so they're reacting to the bad behavior, trying to get control of the situation, and it's not very healthy. You stupid little kid, why in the world are you doing this? Oh my gosh, I can't believe you did that. You're not helping anything when you do that. You're not fixing anything. What are you doing? You're reacting to something. One of the best things that I saw was a show that my wife watches. It's that uh, 101 Kids and Counting show. Um, no, it's 19. <laughs> no, it's, uh, the, it's 19 Kids and Counting. And, uh, and, you know, the Duggars from Arkansas, they, they have a lot of kids. And they're very, very, have amazing morals, very good Christian family. And one of the best episodes was one I just watched this past week with my wife. 
uh, we were laying in bed watching uh, one of the episodes, and it was one, one of these big ice storms happened in Arkansas. And I know that we get a lot of snow here in Wisconsin, but the ice storms in, in, in Arkansas are very, very bad. They're very dangerous because all the power lines are above ground, and the trees begin to fall from the weight of the ice. They're not prepared with, you know, snow plows and things like that. And uh, there's not big, you know, 10-pound bags of ice for, uh, I mean, uh, uh, salt for sale at the stores like there are here because they're just not prepared for it. And so a lot of times what will happen is that people will be out of power for weeks at a time when they have one of these big ice storms. It's just really, really dangerous. Matter of fact, they just had one recently, and they're dealing with the after effects of it now. But on this Duggar show, all their trees fell down on the property. The dad had just built this really nice shed, and a big tree had just demolished this shed and had completely just messed up all the contents. They were out of power, and they have 19 kids, right? And, and, and so because you're out of power, all of our stuff in our refrigerator and our freezer is now being threatened to spoil, and they buy you know, food in like mass quantities to try to save money. And all this money they've spent is beginning to ruin. They're trying to figure out what to do. We can't go to town and buy bags of ice. We, I guess we could throw some of it out. I don't know what they're going to do with all that. And so he, the dad's freaking out and he stops. He walks outside of the house with the cameraman and he tells the cameraman this. He says, I've got to get my thoughts together before I go back in this house. He said, because I'm freaking out right now. He said, because all this damage has just happened to our home. And he said, um, he said, my kids, I've got 19 kids that are watching me, and I've got a wife who's watching how I'm going to react to this situation. He said, I want to make sure that how I react to this situation is going to be something that can teach them how to react when chaotic things happen in their lives. So he stopped. He didn't just go, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Oh, you kids, you get down here. You, we got to do this. We got to do that. Oh my gosh. He didn't react. He, he knew he needed to stop. What did he do? He was being proactive before he reacted. He said, I got to think this through. Hang on. And then he went inside. He said, all right, kids, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get some chainsaws. We're going to do this. We're going to move some of these, these trees out of the way. You know, we're going to move what we can save from the shed. He didn't go in there freaking out. He didn't go in there angry. He didn't go in there reacting out of his emotions. He went in there very calm and collected and put together. And, and let me tell you something. That's going to produce fruitful kids. That's going to produce a fruitful wife who trusts her husband who can have security in that relationship. Why? Because he stops before he acts. Even families, those of us that still have young children at home, when it comes to discipline, you better not discipline your children out of anger or emotion. You've got to stop. Especially if you're going to spank a child or if you're going to make them go sit in a corner or you're counting to 56 and you're about to get... Don't make me say 57. <laughs> Listen to me. You've got to make sure what you're doing... You're not doing out of an emotional state of being angry or frustrated. Because all you're going to do is cause that child to grow up with a fearful image of an angry parent that they can never please and that this parent is always coming down on them instead of helping them to grow and learn from that situation. Okay? That's being fruitful. That's being intentional. Not just allowing your emotions to control you. Now, are you going to get emotional sometimes and you're going to lose it and you're going to say things that you don't mean? Sure, that's called being human. Welcome to the world. But that we have enough humility that we're willing to go back to our children and we're willing to say, I'm sorry, I let my emotions get the better of me. Will you forgive me? Well, I'd apologize to your children. Absolutely. That's being fruitful and intentional. Amen? That's going to create a deeper level of trust with your family than anything that you've ever done before because a lot of us that's one of the things that's lacking in our families is that sense of trust and a lot of it has to do with how we act and react when we come home from a hard days of work where we were stressed out our wives and our children should not get the worst of us men amen, amen. you guys are really quiet today come on <laughs> We have to be intentional. We have to be in, in, intentional and, and, and understand, I'm not going to blame everybody else. I'm not going to react to every situation in a negative way. I want to I I stop living a reactive life that's just yelling, that's maybe manipulating, that's angry, that's abusive, that's always giving out empty threats all the time. That's not going to help anybody. That's just going to repeat that cycle of being reactive. My wife and I went to the Dells a few months back and uh, we were standing in line for a ride, 
and there was a lady there that had probably about six, seven-year-old boy, and she was just cussing that boy up and down. And I looked, and I thought, you know, I bet that's exactly how she was treated. That's exactly how, and, and we just repeat these cycles over and over again. Some, it's got to stop somewhere, folks, amen? Somebody's got to start being fruitful, but it's not just going to happen. You've got to be intentional in doing it, amen, somebody. But no matter what family situation you find yourself in today, no matter what you're dealing with, no matter if you're single, no matter if you're married, no matter if you have children or not, let me tell you something. We can be fruitful by allowing God's definitions to reshape our views and our values. Even, even if we don't have kids, you're still part of this church, which is the family of God. Amen? We need to learn how to work together as a family. We're different, but yet we can work together. But for us to redefine family, we have to allow God to redefine us and stop pointing fingers. Ha, 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 ha. Everybody wants to blame somebody else for why things are the way they are if they're unhappy with life. We always want to point fingers. Let's, let's, let's stop trying to change everyone else and redefine everyone else. Let's start allowing God to redefine us. Amen, somebody? You see, we've got to allow God to do this with us. I, I heard something really good that I wish I could take credit for, but I can't. Um, it's a really good quote, and, and I want you to write it down. It's talking about change and how change starts personally, and it goes like this. Change is man in the gravitational pull of God. Isn't that good? Change is man in the gravitational pull of God. It's us positioning our hearts and our minds in the gravitational pull of God, where he's actually drawing us closer into himself. And as we're being drawn closer to him, we're beginning to see change in the way we think, change in the things that we value, change in the way we act and react, change in how we treat one another. It's not just a laundry list of things that I'm just going to try to fix. Well, I'll try to fix this today. I'll try to fix this tomorrow. I'll try to fix that the next day. I'll work on this, work on that. No, it's me actually getting caught up in the gravitational pull of God's love and God's freedom and God's truth and that relationship with him. And it begins to change my heart because that's really what needs to change anyways. And that's the one thing I can't change. Only God can change a heart. Only God can truly redefine us. But we have to position our lives in a way that we get caught up in that gravitational pull of God. So I'm going to give us some very practical things for the next few minutes to help us to position our hearts and our minds to be caught up in that gravitational pull of God. And, and I don't want you to look at these things as a checklist. I talked to somebody last night after this message and... and um, and they told me, they said, Pastor, I'm doing probably about four of those things on that list, but the other ones I'm not doing. I said, no, 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 no. This isn't a list. This is not a checklist for us to go, okay, I'm, I'm doing that, I'm not doing that. No, these are things that I want us to evaluate our heart and position our heart to be caught up in that gravitational pull of God. Not meant as <laughs> condemnation, because condemnation doesn't come from God. Right. Conviction does. But that's not condemnation that makes you feel like you're worthless. Conviction is something that should spur us on to good works, not something that should make us feel down and worthless, because that's not from God. You can look at Romans 8 and 1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Amen? So condemnation, if you, if you experience condemnation from messages like this, that's not from God. That's the enemy wanting to keep you feeling like you're a failure. You may have done some things wrong in your family. You may have made some poor decisions, but that does not mean you are a failure because change starts today when you decide to allow your mind and heart to be redefined by God's truth. It starts today. So if you have been weak in some of these areas, allow God to redefine and reshape those things today. Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't wait for the new year. Oh, I guess I'll just change those things at the first of the year. Yeah, that'll give me a couple weeks to do my thing. No. Change starts today. I talk to people about dieting a lot and exercise. Oh, yeah, I'm going to start in the new year. Don't start in the new year. Start now. You need to be healthier now. Make the decision now. I'll wait till Monday. No, do it today. Why would you want to wait? Why would you want to put off something that's going to be beneficial and good for you? Why would you put it off? Start today. Change starts today. Not tomorrow. Not next week. It starts today. But it has to be when you position your heart and your mind in that gravitational pull of God. And you're willing to give up what you believe and think for the truth. 
That's how we do this thing, folks. Not just going through a checklist and figuring out how I'm going to fix this and fix that in my life. It starts right now. It starts by putting our, position, our hearts in a position where he changes our heart. So first thing, lead by love. That's what we have to do to redefine family. We must lead by love. Now understand something about leadership. It's not a title, but it's influence. That's what leadership is. It's not something that I get just because I have the title of husband, wife, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, whatever. When I first came here as pastor, almost two years ago, the first weekend of January, it'll be two years since I've been here. And when I first got here, I was pastor of this church, but for the majority of people here, I was only the pastor of this church by title alone. I was called pastor, not because I had earned it in your eyes, but because that was the title that was given to me, and that was the title that you called me respectfully. But as time has gone on, and how, as, as I have built relationships, as you have gotten to see me more and more and know me more and more, then you have begun to learn that that, that that takes a little bit deeper root, a little bit deeper meaning. So when you say pastor, it's not just because of a title, it's because of someone that I've built trust with. It's someone that I've seen, okay, he is what he said he is, and he is what I thought that he was, and I can trust because I see that he's not fake or whatever the case may be. And that's why some people come into church, and this may be your first time here, and you don't know me very well, but yet that name, pastor, gives you very insecure feelings because of things you have attached to it. And a lot of people don't trust pastors or ministers because they associate that word or church or pastor with pain or hurt or disappointment. It's just the truth. It's the way it is. So you've got to understand something. Those things are not just given freely. They're earned. Amen? They're earned through building trust. And the more trust you have, the more influence someone has in your life. Because you're building that bond of trust. And you do that by love. That's how you do it. You lead by love. You have to build that type of relationship with your spouse. Just because you're called husband or wife doesn't immediately mean that I trust everything in your life. Trust every decision you're going to make. We have to learn how to work and do these things together. The longer we stay together, the deeper in love that we fall. Why? Because the deeper our trust gets. Amen? Amen. Same thing with our kids. As our kids, they, they grow up and, and they trust us. And, and there may be things that we do that may break that trust or that they, they may break trust with us by decisions they make. But we have to build that trust through love. That's how it's built. By consistently loving, so in our homes, mom and dad, husbands and wives, friends, even at work, all these different things, we lead by love. That's what it is. Leadership is that influence. And I'm going to give you those scriptures there, but we're not going to read those for the sake of time, but I want you to write them down. And I want, you to, uh, I want to challenge you to study those and read those throughout this week, okay? So all those scriptures up there, I want you to uh, understand a little bit deeper what those things mean. Second thing is choose your words wisely. Man, it's so important, the words that we choose, because your words are always doing one of two things. They're either building something, or they're either tearing something down. All the time, your words are never void of power. A lot of times, people have hang-ups in life simply because of words that have been spoken to them. They can't get past this one thing that their husband or wife, mom or dad, school teacher, friend, or you know whoever said to us that we just hit the replay button over that we just hit the replay button over. We just hit the replay button over. And we just hit it over and over again, and we can't move past it. We worry over it. We get angry over it. We try to justify ourselves over it. We try to, we, we try to blame people over words that people have said. Those words are powerful, folks. We must understand when it comes to our husbands and our, our wives, our friends, our, our co-workers, our family, our church. We've got to be careful with the words that we say and choose those words wisely because we're either building something up or we're tearing something down. We're, we're either bringing something together or we're either tearing something apart. It's very important that we understand the power of our words. And we need to understand that we're always an example. Always, always, always. I want you to write that one down. You are always an example. Don't allow your emotions to dictate the temperature of your home. <laughs> don't allow our emotions to dictate the temperature of our home there's got to be something that transcends our emotions because how you act and how you react both of those things are very vital amen somebody 
not just how you act, but how you react. Our family should not get the worst part of us. They should get the very best. They should get the most patience, the most care, the most attention. And we need to understand we're always an example. We were an example in how we choose to act that day when things are going great. And we're an example when things are falling apart and it looks like there's nothing good happening in our lives. We're always an example. Even when you face difficult circumstances, how you react, you're still being an example to someone. So we always need to keep that in mind as we're redefining family. The fourth thing is that we need to express love to our family regularly because what expression does is it brings security. Expressing love brings security. Men are not exempt. Well, pastor, I'm just not emotional. I know you don't talk like that. I do. But let me tell you something. Men say, I'm not emotional. And your wife may come to you and say, I wish you would touch me more. I wish you would say nice things to me and do sweet things for me like you used to because sometimes I don't feel like you care. I don't feel like you know, you're, you're interested in me anymore. I don't feel like you really love me and want to spend time with me. And, and, and they say things like that. And we tell them, oh, well, I'm just not real emotional. You're right. You're not emotional, men. That's why when you lose your job that you say, well, I sure enjoyed my tenure at that company for the past 20 years, but I guess they needed to replace me with someone else. I sure did enjoy it. That's why you're not emotional. So, so, no, no, listen. You're not emotional, men. So that's why when you're watching football, oh, that referee seems to have an issue with his eyesight. Um, I sure would like to bless him by providing him an eye exam and, and trying to help him out a little bit. Yeah. No, we're not emotional. Yeah, that's exactly how you act in those situations. No, of course it's not. You see, men are emotional. They can express them th themselves in areas of things that they really care about. And sometimes we forget how to express ourselves to those we should be caring about the most. Because we feel awkward or distant or, we don't, or, or we're so worried about what someone will think or whatever. Listen, you better be letting your wife know that you love her. You better be expressing your love to her and expressing your love to your children. They need to be touched. They need to be hugged. They need to be kissed. They need to be held. They need to know that they are cared about and that they are loved. Amen? Because it's the little things that matter the most. It's those little things that we can oftentimes forget because we make the excuse, I'm a man. I'm not emotional. Who told you that? Who told you that? And why do you believe that? You don't know how to express yourself? Really? You had no problem when you watched the football game. No, it's just that we've built up these insecurities and we've, we've, we've swallowed the pill of this stereotypical definition that culture's tried to shove down our throats telling us that we're not. And we use that as a cop-out. And then our wives feel neglected and like they're not cared about. But let me tell you something. When you are uh, expressing yourself to your family and, and loving on your family and, and showing them, and I'm not talking about just going to work. My family knows I love them because I go to work for them. Yeah, I understand that, and I get that. I grew up in that home with that dad that would say that all the time, too. And I get that. But let me tell you something. Change starts today. Change starts now. Because they need that. Because when you do that, when you express yourself to them in different ways, it brings security. And every home needs to be secure. Amen? Our families need to be secure. And that comes through us letting them know in all of those little things we care about them and that we love them and let them know that they're more important than anything else. Another thing that oftentimes is missed when we're talking about redefining family is serving together. Man, serving together is huge. Giving of your time, your stuff, your money will show your children and your wife that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. And what it does is it builds unity in our family. Let your kids know why you tithe the church. Let them know why we get to church early and serve. Let them know why we volunteer at the Salvation Army or our pastor's driveway. Let them know why you do that stuff. Let them know why you're doing that. I mean, I, don't just do it. I, I mean, they may not understand. They may not get it. But don't just let them know. Why do we got to wake up early and, and go to church? Why don't, we, why don't we just explain it to them? Why are we going and serving at, at this place or that place? Why are we going out of our way to buy toys for children we don't even know? Why are we doing that? Tell them why. 
do it together. Make it a family event. Serve as a family. We have a family in our church that does this, and I think it's just awesome. They make up these little uh, goodie bags, and they will actually go and, and give them to homeless people as they see, and the kids love it. They love finding homeless people. Matter of fact, when, um, when, when their, their dad was in the hospital having an operation, the kids were kind of feeling down, and the mom said, hey, kids, let's go find some homeless people. Okay. And they just went and blessed people. What were they doing? They were serving, and they, what did it do? It, it changed the atmosphere from being upset about the fact that dad had the surgery and the fear, and now I'm, I'm giving, and, and, and something's changing in me, and it's unifying my family, and it's showing that it's not all about us. It's showing that it's about serving and giving and loving. Amen? Before you drop off your, your, your tithes in the, in the bucket at church, why don't you take a few minutes at home and bring the kids, say, hey kids, we give at church and this is why we do this. Not because we're afraid, not because we, we feel obligated, but because the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver and we want to be cheerful and we are blessed to be able to give and, and, and so let's pray for this together and, and do that as a family. You know, what you, how, you know how much unity you're going to create, how much love for God and understanding it's not about me, you create when you do little things like that. It's huge. So serve together. Why are we getting there early to, to work at the church? Do they pay you for that? No. Why do you do that? Explain it. Do it together. Amen, somebody? That's huge. That's huge. And the sixth thing kind of goes along with that when these kind of all connect to one another, if you haven't noticed, is humble yourself. What? Yes. That means you're not always right. <laughs> this is the kicker. Be willing to be corrected and keep a teachable heart. That doesn't mean only when someone can prove you wrong. Because being teachable doesn't mean I'm willing to listen when you can prove me wrong. Because that's just an argumentative heart that wants to always be right. And, well, I'm going to be right to you. You can prove me wrong. Really? Yeah, that's going to work out. Let me know how that goes for you. And so we'll put other people down. We'll talk down to people, be negative. Why? Because we're trying to prove that we know more than everybody else instead of having a teachable heart. You know, the older I get, and I'm not very old, and I get that, so don't chuckle. Okay, chuckle. Um, the older I get, the more I realize that all the things I thought I knew, I really don't know as much as I thought I did. And that the things that I used to make extremely complicated are actually very simple. The things that I used to think required very complicated answers are actually very simple. And that's why it, it always frustrated me as a young person, especially a young person in ministry, when um, my pastor uh, at the church where I was a youth pastor at would come to me and, and would try to correct me or tell me things that seemed very simple. And, and I would think, yeah, I know more than you and you don't know. Okay, whatever, pastor, that's great. <laughs> and now that I'm a pastor... And I look back on some of the things, that, some of the wisdom that I didn't really receive as well as I should have. I look back and I go, you know what? The simplicity of that was extremely beautiful and it makes so much sense to me now. Have you ever had that happen where things that didn't make sense to you before or weren't as big of a deal to you? Now you're like, this is the best thing I've ever heard in my life. You know, like someone telling you to spend time with your wife and kids. That's too simple. It's got to be more complicated than that. And so we try to make it very, very complicated. And then the older we get, you know, I just need to spend time with my wife and kids. And it's like, wow, it works. It's simple. It's the simple things. You, have you ever found that maybe you had a job before that you made a lot more money than you're making now and you had more stuff than you have now and maybe you got repositioned at your job or got a different job or you lost a few things and you find out that you're actually more content now than you were then? Because you go, wow, I'm actually more content now because I was so stressed out and I thought I had to have all of these things. And now I'm finding that it's actually the simplicity of life that I'm finding beauty in it. I'm going, wow, I'm actually happier. I'm, I'm, why? That's humbling myself and that's realizing I'm not always right. God, I want what you want. I'm willing to be teachable, God. Keep my heart pliable and teachable and not just think that I have all of the answers. Amen, somebody. I could stop right there, but there's two more. <laughs> the next one is really important after we talk about humility, and that's to forgive. Oh, boy. Never allow the sun to set on your anger. Forgive even if it's one-sided and expect nothing in return. Man, that's challenging. That's a lot harder than it sounds. Never allow the sun to set on your anger. 
I know that that couch is a place that maybe some of you guys often rest on after a discussion with your significant other. But let me tell you something. It shouldn't be that way. Amen? We should be able to make this work because God created it to work. God wanted, God wanted men and women to work, so we've got to figure this thing out. So that means we've got to be willing to forgive even if it's one-sided. It's easy to forgive when the other person says, oh, well, I'm sorry, too. I was such a jerk. Yeah. What if they don't say that? What about you? Are you going to say you're sorry, too? <laughs> now I'm re-offended. Check me back into this hotel, baby, because you're sleeping on the couch. I am re-offended. We'll get re-offended because someone didn't accept our apology. That we were maybe even apologizing for how we acted and they didn't say anything back, so it just starts all over again. No, no, no. You have to forgive even if it's one-sided, expecting nothing in return. Because at the end of the day, when you stand before God, it's going to be you and God. How you make decisions and how you handle things, how you respond to truth is going to be between you and God. Not you and your pastor, not you and your wife, not you and your kids, not you and your mama, your daddy, your aunt, your uncle, your boss. You and God. That's it. You are responsible for you. And when we realize that and recognize that, then I have to do what I know is right regardless of what other people do in response. Amen, somebody. I've got to live with conviction and forgive others. What did Christ do when he was hanging on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Man, that's a hard thing. Could you imagine after somebody had beaten you, nailed you to a cross, you're looking down at them as they're mocking you and you go, oh yeah, you're going to get it. Lightning bolts are coming, baby. That's not what Christ did. Could he have done that? Absolutely. But instead, he chose to say, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. Forgive, even if, even if it's one-sided. You've got to forgive, it, even, even if someone does sleep on the couch. And I hope that you don't do that. But even if you do end up on the couch, or even if you do end up in another room angry, you fix you. You ask for forgiveness. You make it right regardless of what the other person decides to do. Amen, somebody? And lastly, but most importantly, keep God at the center. Keep Him at the center of your life. I don't want you to just put God first. I want you to put Him in the middle, right smack dab in the middle, because when He's at the center, He affects everything else. It's not that I just check God off of my list. Oh, I've done my God thing today. No, no, no. He's at the center. He's, he, he's at the core. He's, he's, he's the battery that charges and powers my life. He, he, he's the thing that affects everything else that I do. Don't neglect to spend time getting to know God, positioning your heart in that gravitational pull of Him. Because listen, even with your friends, your kids, and your spouse, you always need to acknowledge Him. Always need to keep him at the center of everything you do because when you keep God at the center, then he will affect the way that you think, the way you act, the way you react, the way you treat other people. Why? Because when I get caught up in the gravitational pull of God, all of a sudden his love begins to affect me. His grace and his mercy begins to affect me. His truth, his, the scripture where I learn about who he is, his heart begins to affect me. And when these things begin to affect me, it begins to redefine all of this junk where I had bad definitions. And then a situation may come my way that I may have dealt with before and not handled it correctly. But this time I handle it differently. Why? Because someone told me exactly how I should do it? No, because my heart is in a different place. And because I've allowed him to influence me. And now good things have been put in me and good things are coming out of me. Because I've been allowing his influence to take prominence in my life. I've allowed him to be at the core of my life. And I have welcomed him and, and pursued him and wanted to know him. And got caught up in that gravitational pull and acknowledged him. I read his word. I spent time in scripture. I, I talked to him. I want to know him more. And it changes me from the inside out. So here's the thing. We can choose to allow God to define our, our definition of families, or we can choose self-rule. We've got that choice. We can always go back to doing it our way, and denying that authority of God in our life, because self-rule accepts things that are out of order as normal. And it denies, actually, the better portion, which is what God wants, because God wants better for you than you want for yourself. It just may not look like what you thought it would look like. 
You see, God's way for you is going to be better in the long run. Being in God's will, even if it doesn't look like I thought it would look like, it's still better. Amen? I mean, you may or may not have a golden Kohler toilet in your home. I don't know. But that just, just having everything made in gold, having everything just lavish and wonderful, that we have this idea about what a picture of success looks like. And we think that it means driving all these amazing cars, living in these amazing houses, and, and, and having uh, you know, all of this money pouring in. And if God can get me that way, sure, I'll try the God thing. But what if contentment didn't look like that at all? What if God's will for you didn't look like that at all? What if it was different? What if it was something? I mean, God said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or a seed begging for bread. He, he, he wants to bless you and he wants to take care of you. But what if it's actually different than your idea of what blessing means? What if it's actually something that's going to help you and propel you in life to accomplish the thing that he's created you for? What if it's different and you don't even realize it because we're not acknowledging him, we're not pursuing him, we want self-rule. And if God can't get me what I think I need, then I don't want God. I'll get it on my own. What if God's telling you, no, what I have for you is actually going to be better for you. It's better for you. Amen, somebody? I want God's definition in my life, not my definition. Because my definition is selfish. We all have selfish definitions when we try to look at, at, at the picture that we would want for our lives. God, no, I want what you want. Because what you want is, is best. And so when I choose self-rule, I begin to accept things that are out of order as normal. And I begin to repeat cycles over and over and over again of things I've seen, things I've been told, this is how it's supposed to go. I've just accepted that as normal in my life. And God's saying, no, 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 you're missing it. I've got so much better for you. I've got so much love for you. I have real peace for you, real joy for you, real contentment for you. You're never going to find it in those things you're chasing after and pursuing. It's going to cost you more than it's worth. And God is trying to wake us up to that fact to get us to realize that for us to be fruitful we have to position our heart to allow God's definition of family to redefine what we've accepted as truth in our hearts and in our minds and it starts with us and it starts today and it starts right now God I want what you want I want to trust you in the middle of my storm I want to trust you in the middle of this chaos I may be feeling right now because he's reprogramming, redefining some things for you through showing you his heart for you. That's what we did today through his word. And I pray that this has helped you no matter what season of life you may be in, no matter what you may be dealing with. Because God has not quit on you. Somebody needs to hear that today. I said God has not quit on you. He hasn't quit on you. He hasn't forgotten about you, even though you feel like you've been forgotten and abandoned. You have not been abandoned. You have not been forgotten. God knows exactly where you are, and he says, I have not forgotten about you. He wants you to know that. He has not forgotten about you. Somebody in this place needs to know God has not forgotten about you. That needs to ring in your ears all throughout this week. God has not forgotten about you. It may look like it in your own eyes. It may feel like it. But we don't go by how things feel or how they seem, how they appear. We have to trust that he's faithful and that he's going to do what he said he was going to do. And that he delivers, that his promises are yes and amen. That he is a good God, that he's for us and not against us. That no weapon formed against me shall prosper. That I'm in the very hand of God and that whatever he has for me is going to be better than anything I could figure out on my own and how I want it to work out he hasn't given up on you you don't give up on him you're a part of this family this family that's called the church the body of Christ we're all connected together and he wants you to understand that he has not forgotten about you Today, before we leave, we're going to receive communion together. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit wogcc.com.